Part two of the History and Legends of the Pagan Arabs from A Literary History of the Arabs by Reynold A. Nicholson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History and Legends of the Pagan Arabs, Part Two. According to Mohammedan genealogists, the Rasanids, both those settled in Medina and those to whom the name is consecrated by popular usage, the Rasanids of Syria, are descended from Amr ibn Amr al Muzaykiyah, who, as was related in the last chapter, sold his possessions in Yemen and quitted the country, taking with him a great number of its inhabitants shortly before the bursting of the dyke of Ma'rab. His son, Jaffna, is generally regarded as the founder of the dynasty. Of their early history, very few authentic facts have been preserved. At first, we are told, they paid tribute to the Doja'ima, a family of the stock of Salih, who ruled the Syrian borderlands under Roman protection. A struggle ensued, from which the Hassanids emerged victorious, and henceforth we find them established in these regions as the representatives of Roman authority, with the official titles of Patricius and Philach, which they and the Arabs around them rendered after the simple Oriental fashion by King Melek, the first, says Ibn Qutayba, that reigned in Syria of the family of Jaffna was Harith ibn Amr Muharraq, who was so called because he burnt Harraqa, the Arabs, in their houses. He is Harith the Elder, al-Akbar, and his name of honor, Kunya, is Abu Shamr. After him reigned Harith ibn Abishamr, known as Harith the Lame, al-Iraj, whose mother was Maria of the Earrings. He was the best of their kings, and the most fortunate, and the craftiest, and in his raids he went the farthest afield. He led an expedition against Khaybar, and carried off a number of prisoners, but set them free after his return to Syria. When Mundar ibn Ma' al Sama' marched against him with an army one hundred thousand strong, Harith sent a hundred men to meet him, among them the poet Labid, who was then a youth, ostensibly to make peace. They surrounded Mundar's tent and slew the king and his companions. Then they took horse, and some escaped while others were slain. The Hassanid cavalry attacked the army of Mundar and put them to flight. Harith had a daughter named Halima, who perfumed the hundred champions on that day, and clad them in shrouds of white linen and coats of mail. She is the heroine of the proverb, The day of Halima is no secret. Harith was succeeded by his son, Harith the Younger. Among his other sons were Amr ibn Harith, called Abu Shamr the Younger, to whom Nabiha came on leaving Nu'man ibn Mundar, Mundar ibn Harith, and Al-Aham ibn Harith. Jabala, the son of Al-Aham, was the last of the kings of Ghassan. He was twelve spans in height, and his feet brushed the ground when he rode on horseback. 
He reached the Islamic period and became a Muslim in the caliphate of Omar ibn al-Khattab, but afterwards he turned Christian and went to live in the Byzantine Empire. The occasion of his turning Christian was this. In passing through the bazaar of Damascus, he let his horse tread upon one of the bystanders, who sprang up and struck Jabala a blow on the face. The Ghassanis seized the fellow and brought him before Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah, complaining that he had struck their master. Abu Ubaidah demanded proof. What use wilt thou make of the proof? said Jabala. He answered, If he has struck thee, thou wilt strike him a blow in return. And shall not he be slain? No. Shall not his hand be cut off? No, said Abu Ubaidah. God has ordained retaliation only blow for blow. Then Jabala went forth and betook himself to Roman territory and became a Christian, and he stayed there all the rest of his life. The Arabian traditions respecting the dynasty of Rasan are hopelessly confused and supply hardly any material even for the rough historical sketch which may be pieced together from the scattered notices in Byzantine authors. It would seem that the first unquestionable Rasanid prince was Harith ibn Jabala, Arethasto Gabala, who figures in Arabian chronicles as Harith the Lame, and who was appointed by Justinian about 529 AD to balance on the Roman side the active and enterprising king of Hira, Mundar ibn Ma' al-Sama'. During the greater part of his long reign, 529 to 569 AD, he was engaged in war with his dangerous rival, to whose defeat and death in the decisive battle of Halima we have already referred. Like all his line, Harith was a Christian of the Monophysite Church which he defended with equal zeal and success at a time when its very existence was at stake. The following story illustrates his formidable character. Towards the end of his life he visited Constantinople to arrange with the imperial government which of his sons should succeed him, and made a powerful impression on the people of that city, especially on the emperor's nephew Justinus. Many years afterwards, when Justinus had fallen into dotage, the chamberlains would frighten him when he began to rave with, Hush, Arithus will come and take you. Herath was succeeded by his son, Mundar, who vanquished the new king of Hira, Kabus ibn Hind, on Ascension Day, 570 AD, in a battle which is perhaps identical with that celebrated by the Arabs as the Battle of Ain Obar. The refusal of the Emperor Justinus to furnish him with money may have prevented Mundar from pursuing his advantage, and was the beginning of open hostility between them, which culminated about eleven years later in his being carried off to Constantinople and forced to reside in Sicily. From this time to the Persian conquest of Palestine, 614 AD, anarchy prevailed throughout the Hassanid kingdom. The various tribes elected their own princes, who sometimes, no doubt, were Jaffnites, but the dynasty had virtually broken up. 
Possibly it was restored by Heraclius when he drove the Persians out of Syria, 629 A.D., as the Hassanians are repeatedly found fighting for Rome against the Moslems, and according to the unanimous testimony of Arabian writers, the Jaffnite, Jabala ibn al-Iham, who took an active part in the struggle, was the last king of Ghassan. His accession may be placed about 635 A.D. The poet, Hassan ibn Thabit, who as a native of Medina could claim kinship with the Hassanids and visited their court in his youth, gives a glowing description of its luxury and magnificence. I have seen ten singing girls, five of them Greeks, singing Greek songs to the music of lutes, and five from Hira, who had been presented to King Jabala by Iyas ibn Qabisa, chanting Babylonian airs. Arab singers used to come from Mecca and elsewhere for his delight, and when he would drink wine, he sat on a couch of myrtle and jasmine and all sorts of sweet-smelling flowers surrounded by gold and silver vessels full of ambergris and musk. During winter, aloe's wood was burned in his apartments, while in summer he cooled himself with snow. Both he and his courtiers wore light robes arranged with more regard to comfort than ceremony in the hot weather, and white furs called fanuk or the like, in the cold season. And, by God, I was never in his company, but he gave me the robe which he was wearing on that day, and many of his friends were thus honored. He treated the rude with forbearance, he laughed without reserve, and lavished his gifts before they were sought. He was handsome and agreeable in conversation. I never knew him offend in speech or act. Unlike the rival dynasty on the Euphrates, the Hassanids had no fixed residence. They ruled the country round Damascus and Palmyra, but these places were never in their possession. The capital of their nomad kingdom was the temporary camp, in Aramaic Herta, which followed them to and fro, but was generally to be found in the Gaulanitis, Al-Jolan, south of Damascus. Thus, under the quickening impulse of Hellenistic culture, the Hassanids developed a civilization far superior to that of the Lachmites, who, just because of their half-barbarian character, were more closely in touch with the heathen Arabs, and exercised a deeper influence upon them. Some aspects of this civilization have been indicated in the description of Jabala ibn al-Iham's court, attributed to the poet Hassan. An earlier bard, the famous Nabera, having fallen out of favor with Nu'man III of Hira, fled to Syria, where he composed a splendid eulogy of the Hassanids in honor of his patron, King Amr, son of Harith the Lame. After celebrating their warlike prowess, which he has immortalized in the oft-quoted verse, one fault they have, their swords are blunt of edge, through constant beating on their foeman's mail. He concludes in a softer strain, Theirs is a liberal nature that God gave to no men else. Their virtues never fail, 
their home the holy land, their faith upright. They hope to prosper if good deeds avail. Zoned in fair wise and delicately shod, they keep the feast of palms when maidens pale, whose scarlet silken robes on trestles hang, greet them with odorous boughs and bid them hail. Long lapped in ease, though bred to war, their limbs green-shouldered vestments white-sleeved richly veil. The pre-Islamic history of the Bedouins is mainly a record of wars, or rather guerrillas, in which a great deal of raiding and plundering was accomplished, as a rule without serious bloodshed. There was no lack of shouting, volleys of vaunts and satires were exchanged, camels and women were carried off, many skirmishes took place, but few pitched battles. It was an Homeric kind of warfare that called forth individual exertion in the highest degree, and gave ample opportunity for single-handed deeds of heroism. To write a true history of such Bedouin feuds is well-nigh impossible. As comparatively trustworthy sources of information, we have only the poems and fragments of verse which have been preserved. According to Sayuti, the Arabian traditionists used to demand from any Bedouin who related an historical event the citation of some verses in its support, and, in effect, all such stories that have come down to us are crystallized round the poems. Unfortunately, these crystals are seldom pure. It appears only too often that the narratives have been invented with abundant fancy and with more or less skill to suit the contents of the verses. But although what is traditionally related concerning the battle days of the Arabs, Ayyamul Arab, is to a large extent legendary, it describes with sufficient fidelity how tribal hostilities generally arose and the way in which they were conducted. The following account of the War of Basus, the most famous of those waged in pre-Islamic times, will serve to illustrate this important phase of Bedouin life. Towards the end of the 5th century AD, Kuleib, son of Rabia, was chieftain of the Banu Taghlib, a powerful tribe which divided with their kinsmen, the Banu Bakr, a vast tract in northeastern Arabia, extending from the central highlands to the Syrian desert. His victory at the head of a confederacy formed by these tribes and others over the Yemenite Arabs made him the first man in the peninsula, and soon his pride became no less proverbial than his power. He was married to Halila, daughter of Murra of the Benu Bakr, and dwelt in a preserve, Himmah, where he claimed the sole right of pasturage for himself and the sons of Murra. His brother-in-law, Jassas, had an aunt named Basus. While living under her nephew's protection, she was joined by a certain Sa'ad, a client of her own people, who brought with him a she-camel called Sarabi. 
Now it happened that Kuleib, seeing a lark's nest as he walked on his land, said to the bird, which was screaming and fluttering distressfully over her eggs, Have no fear, I will protect thee. But a short time afterwards he observed in that place the track of a strange camel, and found the eggs trodden to pieces. Next morning, when he and Jassas visited the pasture-ground, Kuleib noticed the she-camel of Sa'ad among his brother-in-law's herd, and conjecturing that she had destroyed the eggs, cried out to Jassas, Take heed, thou, take heed. I have pondered something, and were I sure, I would have done it. May this she-camel never come here again with this herd. By God, exclaimed Jassas, but she shall come. And when Kuleib threatened to pierce her udder with an arrow, Jassas retorted, By the stones of Wa'el, fix thine arrow in her udder, and I will fix my lance in thy backbone. Then he drove his camels forth from the Hemah, Kuleib went home in a passion, and said to his wife, who sought to discover what ailed him, Knowest thou any one who durst defend his client against me? She answered, No one except my brother Jassas, if he has given his word. She did what she could to prevent the quarrel going further, and for a time nothing worse than taunts passed between them until one day Kuleib went to look after his camels which were being taken to water and were followed by those of Jassas. While the latter were waiting their turn to drink, Sa'ad's she-camel broke loose and ran towards the water. Kuleib imagined that Jassas had let her go deliberately, and resenting the supposed insult, he seized his bow and shot her through the udder. The beast lay down, moaning loudly, before the tent of Basus, who in vehement indignation at the wrong suffered by her friend, Sa'ad, tore the veil from her head, beating her face and crying, O oh, shame, shame! Then, addressing Sa'ad, but raising her voice, so that Jassas might hear, she spoke these verses, which are known as the instigators, al-Muwathibat. O Sa'ad, be not deceived, protect thyself. This people for their clients have no care. Look to my herds, I charge thee, for I doubt, even my little daughter's ill may fare. By thy life had I been in Minkar's house. Thou wouldst not have been wronged, my client there. But now such folk I dwell among that when the wolf comes, tis my sheep he comes to tear. Jassas was stung to the quick by the imputation which no herb can endure that injury and insult might be inflicted upon his guest-friend with impunity. Some days afterwards, having ascertained that Kuleib had gone out unarmed, he followed and slew him, and fled in haste to his own people. Murra, when he heard the news, said to his son, Thou alone must answer for thy deed, thou shalt be put in chains, that his kinsmen may slay thee. 
by the stones of Wa'il, never will Bakr and Taghlib be joined together in welfare after the death of Kuleib. Verily an evil thing hast thou brought upon thy people, O Jassas. Thou hast slain their chief, and severed their union, and cast war into their midst. So he put Jassas in chains, and confined him in a tent. Then he summoned the elders of the families, and asked them, What do ye say concerning Jassas? Here he is, a prisoner, until the avengers demand him, and we deliver him unto them. No, by God, cried Sa'ad ibn Malik ibn Tubaya ibn Qais, we will not give him up, but will fight for him to the last man. With these words he called for a camel to be sacrificed, and when its throat was cut, they swore to one another over the blood. Thereupon Murra said to Jassas, If war thou hast wrought and brought on me, no laggard I with arms outworn, whate'er befall I make to flow the baneful cups of death at morn. When spear-points clash, my wounded man is forced to drag the spear he stained. Never I reck, if war must be, what destiny hath preordained. Donning war's harness I will strive to fend from me the shame that sears. Already I thrill, and my lust is roused for the shock of the horsemen against the spears. Thus began the war of Basus between Taghlib on the one side and the clan of Sheban, to which Murra belonged, on the other. For at first the remaining divisions of Bakr held aloof from the struggle, considering Sheban to be clearly in the wrong. The latter were reduced to dire straits when an event occurred which caused the Bakrites to rise as one man on behalf of their fellows. Harith ibn Ubad, a famous knight of Bakr, had refused to take part in the contest, saying in words which became proverbial, I have neither camel nor she-camel in it, id est, it is no affair of mine. One day his nephew, Bujer, encountered Kuleib's brother, Muhalhil, on whom the mantle of the murdered chief had fallen, and Muhalhil, struck with admiration for the youth's comeliness, asked him who he was. Bujer, said he, the son of Amr, the son of Obad, and who is thy uncle on the mother's side? My mother is a captive, for he would not name an uncle of whom he had no honor. Then Muhalhil slew him, crying, Pay for Kuleib's shoe-latchet. On hearing this, Harith sent a message to Muhalhil, in which he declared that if vengeance were satisfied by the death of Bujer, he for his part would gladly acquiesce. But Muhalhil replied, I have taken satisfaction only for Kuleib's shoe-latchet. Thereupon, Harith sprang up in wrath and cried, God knows I kindled not this fire, although I am burned in it today. A lord for a shoe-latchet is too dear. To horse, to horse, away! And Alfind of the Benubakr said on this occasion, 
We spared the Benu Hind and said our brothers they remain. It may be time will make of us one people yet again. But when the wrong grew manifest and naked ill stood plain, and naught was left but ruthless hate, we paid them bane with bane. As lions marched we forth to war, in wrath and high disdain, our swords brought widowhood and tears, and wailing in their train. Our spears dealt gashes wide, whence blood like water spilled amain. No way but force to weaken force and mastery obtain. Tis wooing contumely to meet wild actions with humane. By evil thou mayst win to peace, when good is tried in vain. The Benu Bakr now prepared for a decisive battle. As their enemy had the advantage in numbers, they adopted a stratagem devised by Hereth. Fight them, said he, with your women. Equip every woman with a small water skin and give her a club. Place the whole body of them behind you. This will make you more resolved in battle, and wear some distinguishing mark which they will recognize, so that when a woman passes by one of your wounded, she may know him by his mark, and give him water to drink, and raise him from the ground. But when she passes by one of your foes, she will smite him with her club, and slay him. So the Bakrites shaved their heads, devoting themselves to death, and made this a mark of recognition between themselves and their women, and this day was called the Day of Shearing. Now Jahdar ibn Dubay'ah was an ill-favored dwarfish man, with fair-flowing love-locks, and he said, O my people, if ye shave my head, ye will disfigure me. So leave my locks for the first horseman of Taghlib that shall emerge from the hill pass on the morrow, meaning I will answer for him if my locks are spared. On his request being granted, he exclaimed, To wife and daughter, henceforth I am dead, dust for ointment on my hair is shed. Let me close with the horsemen who hither ride. Cut my locks from me if I stand aside. Well what's a mother if the son she bore, And swaddled on her bosom and smelt him o'er, Whenever warriors in the melee meet, Is a puny weakling or a man complete. He kept his promise, but in the course of the fight he fell, severely wounded. When the women came to him, they saw his love locks, and imagining that he was an enemy, dispatched him with their clubs. The presence of women on the field and the active share they took in the combat naturally provoked the bitterest feelings. If they were not engaged in finishing the bloody work of the men, their tongues were busy inciting them. We are told that a daughter of Alfind bared herself recklessly and chanted, War, 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 it has blazed up and scorched us sore, the highlands are filled with its roar, well done the morning when your heads ye shore. 
the mothers were accompanied by their children, whose tender age did not always protect them from an exasperated foe. It is related that a horseman of the Benu Taghlib transfixed a young boy and lifted him up on the point of his spear. He is said to have been urged to this act of savagery by one of Al-Bazbaz, who was riding behind him on the cropper. Their triumph was short. Alfind saw them, and with a single spear thrust, pinned them to each other, an exploit which his own verses record. On this day, the Benu Bakr gained a great victory, and broke the power of Taghlib. It was the last battle of note in the Forty Years' War, which was carried on by raiding and plundering, until the exhaustion of both tribes and the influence of King Mundar III of Hera brought it to an end. Not many years after the conclusion of peace between Bakr and Taghlib, another war, hardly less famous in tradition than the War of Basus, broke out in Central Arabia. The combatants were the tribes of Abs and Dhobyan, the principal stocks of the Benu Ratafan, and the occasion of their coming to blows is related as follows. Qais, son of Zuhair, was chieftain of Abs. He had a horse called Dahis, renowned for its speed, which he matched against Rabra, a mare belonging to Hodeifa ibn Badr, the chief of Dhobyan. It was agreed that the course should be a hundred bowshots in length, and that the victor should receive a hundred camels. When the race began, Rabra took the lead, but as they left the firm ground and entered upon the sand, where the going was heavy, Dahas gradually drew level and passed his antagonist. He was nearing the goal when some Dhobyanites sprang from an ambuscade prepared beforehand and drove him out of his course, thus enabling Rabra to defeat him. On being informed of this foul play, Qais naturally claimed that he had won the wager, but the men of Dhobyan refused to pay even a single camel. Bitterly resenting their treachery, he waylaid and slew one of Hodeifa's brothers. Hodeifa sought vengeance, and the murder of Malik, a brother of Qais, by his horsemen, gave the signal for war. In the fighting which ensued, Dobyan more than held their own, but neither party could obtain a decisive advantage. Qais slew the brothers Hodeifa and Hamel. Hamel I slew and eased my heart thereby. Hodeifa glutted my avenging brand. But though I slaked my thirst by slaying them, I would as lief have lost my own right hand. After a long period, forty years according to the traditional computation, Abs and Dhobyan were reconciled by the exertions of two chieftains of the latter tribe, Harith ibn Auf and Haram ibn Sinan, whose generous and patriotic intervention the poet Zuhair has celebrated. Qais went into exile. I will not look, he said, on the face of any woman of Dobyan, whose father or brother or husband or son I have killed. 
If we may believe the legend, he became a Christian monk and ended his days in Oman. Descending westward from the highlands of Nejd, the traveller gradually approaches the Red Sea, which is separated from the mountains running parallel to it by a narrow strip of coastland called the Tehama, Netherland. The rugged plateau between Nejd and the coast forms the Hejaz barrier, through which in ancient times the Sabayan caravans, laden with costly merchandise, passed on their way to the Mediterranean ports. Long before the beginning of our era, two considerable trading settlements had sprung up in this region. Videlicet, Makoraba, Mecca, and some distance farther north, Yathripa, Yathrib, the pre-Islamic name of Medina. Of their early inhabitants and history, we know nothing except what is related by Mohammedan writers, whose information reaches back to the days of Adam and Abraham. Mecca was the cradle of Islam, and Islam, according to Muhammad, is the religion of Abraham, which was corrupted by succeeding generations until he himself was sent to purify it and to preach it anew. Consequently, the pre-Islamic history of Mecca has all been, so to speak, Islamized. The holy city of Islam is made to appear in the same light thousands of years before the Prophet's time. Here, it is said, the Arabs were united in worship of Allah, hence they scattered and fell into idolatry. Hither they return annually as pilgrims to a shrine which had been originally dedicated to the one supreme being, but which afterwards became a pantheon of tribal deities. This theory lies at the root of the Mohammedan legend, which I shall now recount as briefly as possible, only touching on the salient points of interest. In the Meccan Valley, the primitive home of that portion of the Arab race which claims descent from Ismail, Ishmael, the son of Ibrahim, Abraham, by Hajar, Hagar, stands an irregular, cube-shaped building of small dimensions, the Kaaba. Legend attributes its foundation to Adam, who built it by divine command after a celestial archetype. At the deluge, it was taken up into heaven, but was rebuilt on its former site by Abraham and Ishmael. While they were occupied in this work, Gabriel brought the celebrated black stone, which is set in the southeast corner of the building, and he also instructed them in the ceremonies of the pilgrimage. When all was finished, Abraham stood on a rock, known to later ages as the Maqam or Ibrahim, and turning to the four quarters of the sky, made proclamation, O ye people, the pilgrimage of the ancient house is prescribed unto you. Hearken to your Lord, and from every part of the world came the answer, Labeka Allahumma labek, id est, we obey, O God, we obey. The descendants of Ishmael multiplied exceedingly, so that the barren valley could no longer support them, and a great number wandered forth to other lands. 
they were succeeded as rulers of the sacred territory by the tribe of Jorhum, who waxed in pride and evil doing until the vengeance of God fell upon them. Mention has frequently been made of the bursting of the dike of Ma'rib, which caused an extensive movement of Yemenite stocks to the north. The invaders halted in the Hejaz, and, having almost exterminated the Jorhumites, resumed their journey. One group, however, the Benu Khuza', led by their chief, Luhay, settled in the neighborhood of Mecca. Amr, son of Luhay, was renowned among the Arabs for his wealth and generosity. Ibn Hisham says, I have been told by a learned man that Amr ibn Luhay went from Mecca to Syria on some business, and when he arrived at Ma'ab in the land of Al-Balqa, he found the inhabitants who were Amalek worshipping idols. What are these idols? he inquired. They are idols that send us rain when we ask them for rain, and help us when we ask them for help. Will ye not give me one of them, said Amr, that I may take it to Arabia to be worshipped there? So they gave him an idol called Hubal, which he brought to Mecca, and set it up, and bade the people worship and venerate it. Following his example, the Arabs brought their idols and installed them round the sanctuary. The triumph of paganism was complete. We are told that hundreds of idols were destroyed by Muhammad when he entered Mecca at the head of a Muslim army in the year 8 after Hijra, 629 A.D. To return to the posterity of Ismail through Adnan, the principal of their descendants who remained in the Hejaz were the Hodail, the Kenana, and the Quraysh. The last-named tribe must now engage our attention almost exclusively. During the century before Muhammad, we find them in undisputed possession of Mecca and acknowledged guardians of the Kaaba, an office which they administered with a shrewd appreciation of its commercial value. Their rise to power is related as follows. Kilab ibn Murrah, a man of Quraysh, had two sons, Zuhra and Zaid. The latter was still a young child when his father died, and soon afterwards his mother, Fatima, who had married again, left Mecca, taking Zaid with her, and went to live in her new husband's home beside the Syrian borders. Zaid grew up far from his native land, and for this reason he got the name of Qusay, id est, little far away. When he reached man's estate and discovered his true origin, he returned to Mecca, where the hegemony was wholly in the hands of the Khuzaites, under the chieftain Hulail ibn Hubshia, with the determination to procure the superintendence of the Kaaba for his own people, the Quraysh, who, as pure-blooded descendants of Ismail, had the best right to that honor. By his marriage with Hubba, the daughter of Hulail, he hoped to inherit the privileges vested in his father-in-law, but Hulail, on his deathbed, committed the keys of the Kaaba to a kinsman named Abu Rabshan. 
not to be baffled, Cosset made the keeper drunk and persuaded him to sell the keys for a skin of wine. Hence the proverbs, a greater fool than Abu Rabshan, and Abu Rabshan's bargain, denoting a miserable fraud. Naturally, the Khuzaites did not acquiesce in the results of this transaction. They took up arms, but Cosset was prepared for the struggle and won a decisive victory. He was now master of temple and town, and could proceed to the work of organization. His first step was to bring together the Quraysh, who had previously been dispersed over a wide area into the Meccan Valley. This earned for him the title of Al-Mujami'ah, the Congregator, so that each family had its allotted quarter. He built a house of assembly, Darul Nedwa, where matters affecting the common weal were discussed by the elders of the tribe. He also instituted and centered in himself a number of dignities in connection with the government of the Kaaba and the administration of the pilgrimage, besides others of a political and military character. Such was his authority that after his death, no less than during his life, all these ordinances were regarded by the Quraysh as sacred and inviolable. The death of Qusay may be placed in the latter half of the 5th century. His descendant, the Prophet Muhammad, was born about a hundred years afterwards in 570 or 571 AD. With one notable exception to be mentioned immediately, the history of Mecca during the period thus defined is a record of petty factions unbroken by any event of importance. The Prophet's ancestors fill the stage and assume a commanding position which in all likelihood they never possessed. The historical rivalry of the Umayyads and Abbasids appears in the persons of their founders, Umayya and Hashim, and so forth. Meanwhile, the influence of the Quraysh was steadily maintained and extended. The Kaaba had become a great national rendezvous, and the crowds of pilgrims which it attracted from almost every Arabian clan not only raised the credit of the Quraysh, but also materially contributed to their commercial prosperity. It has already been related how Abraha, the Abyssinian viceroy of Yemen resolved to march against Mecca with the avowed purpose of avenging upon the Kaaba a sacrilege committed by one of the Quraysh in the church at Sana'a. Something of that kind may have served as a pretext, but no doubt his real aim was to conquer Mecca and to gain control of her trade. This memorable expedition is said by Muslim historians to have taken place in the year of Muhammad's birth, about 570 AD, usually known as the Year of the Elephant, a proof that the Arabs were deeply impressed by the extraordinary spectacle of these huge animals, one or more of which accompanied the Abyssinian force. The report of Abraha's preparations filled the tribesmen with dismay. 
At first they endeavored to oppose his march, regarding the defense of the Kaaba as a sacred duty, but they soon lost heart, and Abraha, after defeating Vonafar, a Himyarite chieftain, encamped in the neighborhood of Mecca without further resistance. He sent the following message to Abdul Muttalab, the Prophet's grandfather, who was at that time the most influential personage in Mecca. I have not come to wage war on you, but only to destroy the temple. Unless you take up arms in its defense, I have no wish to shed your blood. Abdul Muttalab replied, By God we seek no war for which we are unable. This is God's holy house, and the house of Abraham his friend. It is for him to protect his house and sanctuary. If he abandons it, we cannot defend it. Then Abdul Muttalab was conducted by the envoy to the Abyssinian camp, as Abraha had ordered. There he inquired after Dhu'nafar, who was his friend, and found him a prisoner. O Dhu'nafar, said he, can you do aught in that which has befallen us? Dhu'nafar answered, What can a man do who is a captive in the hands of a king, expecting day and night to be put to death? I can do nothing at all in this matter, but Ones, the elephant driver, is my friend. I will send to him and press your claims on his consideration, and ask him to procure you an audience with the king. Tell Ones what you wish. He will plead with the king in your favor if he can. So Dhu'nafar sent for Ones and said to him, O Ones, Abdul Muttalab is lord of Quraysh and master of the caravans of Mecca. He feeds the people in the plain and the wild creatures on the mountain tops. The king has seized two hundred of his camels. Now get him admitted to the king's presence and help him to the best of your power. Ones consented, and soon Abdul Muttalab stood before the king. When Abraha saw him, he held him in too high respect to let him sit in an inferior place, but was unwilling that the Abyssinians should see the Arab chief, who was a large man and a comely, seated on a level with himself. He therefore descended from his throne and sat on his carpet and bade Abdul Muttalab sit beside him. Then he said to his dragoman, Ask him what he wants of me. Abdul Muttalab replied, I want the king to restore to me two hundred camels of mine which he has taken away. Abraha said to the dragoman, Tell him, you pleased me when I first saw you, but now that you have spoken to me, I hold you cheap. What, do you speak to me of two hundred camels which I have taken, and omit to speak of a temple venerated by you and your fathers which I have come to destroy? Then said Abdul Muttalab, The camels are mine, but the temple belongs to another who will defend it. And on the king exclaiming, He cannot defend it from me, he said, That is your affair. Only give me back my camels. 
As it is related in a more credible version, the tribes settled round Mecca sent ambassadors, of whom Abdul Muttalib was one, offering to surrender a third part of their possessions to Abraha on condition that he should spare the temple, but he refused. Having discovered his camels, Abdul Muttalib returned to the Quraysh, told them what had happened, and bade them leave the city and take shelter in the mountains. Then he went to the Kaaba, accompanied by several of the Quraysh, to pray for help against Abraha and his army. Grasping the ring of the door, he cried, O God, defend thy neighboring folk, even as a man his gear defendeth. Let not their cross and guileful plans defeat the plans thyself intendeth. But if thou make it so, tis well, according to thy will it endeth. Next morning, when Abraha prepared to enter Mecca, his elephant knelt down and would not budge, though they beat its head with an axe and thrust sharp stakes into its flanks. But when they turned it in the direction of Yemen, it rose up and trotted with alacrity. Then God sent from the sea a flock of birds like swallows, every one of which carried three stones as large as a chickpea or a lentil, one in its bill and one in each claw, and all who were struck by those stones perished. The rest fled in disorder, dropping down as they ran or wherever they halted to quench their thirst. Abraha himself was smitten with a plague so that his limbs rotted off piecemeal. These details are founded on the 105th chapter of the Quran, entitled The Surah of the Elephant, which may be freely rendered as follows. Hast not thou seen the people of the elephant how dealt with them the Lord? Did not he make their plot to end in ruin abhorred, when he sent against them birds hoard on hoard, and stones of baked clay upon them poured, and made them as leaves of corn devoured? The part played by Abdul Muttalib in the story is, of course, a pious fiction designed to glorify the holy city and to claim for the Prophet's family fifty years before Islam a predominance which they did not obtain until long afterwards. But equally, of course, the legend reflects Mohammedan belief and may be studied with advantage as a characteristic specimen of its class. When God repulsed the Abyssinians from Mecca and smote them with his vengeance, the Arabs held the Quraysh in high respect and said, They are God's people. God hath fought for them, and hath defended them against their enemy, and made poems on this matter. The following verses, according to Ibn Ishaq, are by Abu Salt ibn Abi Rabia of Thaqif. Others more reasonably ascribe them to his son Umayyah, a well-known poet and monotheist, Hanif, contemporary with Muhammad. Lo, the signs of our Lord are everlasting. None disputes them except the unbeliever. 
He created day and night, unto all men is their reckoning ordained clear and certain. Gracious Lord, he illumines the daytime with a sun widely scattering radiance. He the elephant stayed at Muramus, so that sore it limped as though it were hamstrung cleaving close to its halter and down dropped as one falls from the crag of a mountain gathered round it were princes of kinda noble heroes fierce hawks in the melee there they left it they all fled together every man with his shank bone broken vain before god is every religion when the dead rise except the hanifite the patriotic feelings aroused in the Arabs of the Hejaz by the Abyssinian invasion, feelings which must have been shared to some extent by the Bedouins generally, received a fresh stimulus through events which occurred about forty years after the time on the other side of the peninsula. It will be remembered that the Lachmite dynasty at Hera came to an end with Norman Third, who was cruelly executed by Khosrow Parvez, 602 or 607 A.D. Before his death, he had deposited his arms and other property with Hanir, a chieftain of the Banu Bakr. These were claimed by Khosrow, and as Hanir refused to give them up, a Persian army was sent to Dhuqar, a place near Kufa, abounding in water, and consequently a favorite resort of the Bakkarites during the dry season. A desperate conflict ensued, in which the Persians were completely routed. Although the forces engaged were comparatively small, this victory was justly regarded by the Arabs as marking the commencement of a new order of things. Exemple gratia, it is related that Muhammad said when the tidings reached him, This is the first day on which the Arabs have obtained satisfaction from the Persians. The desert tribes, hitherto overshadowed by the Sasanian Empire and held in check by the powerful dynasty of Hera, were now confident and aggressive. They began to hate and despise the Colossus, which they no longer feared, and which, before many years had elapsed, they trampled in the dust. End of Part 2 of the History and Legends of the Pagan Arabs from A Literary History of the Arabs by Reynold A. Nicholson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain.